Oh, good morning, everybody. We are continuing through our book, our study of the book of Judges. So if you have a Bible, uh, if you look in your Old Testament right towards the beginning, you will find the book of Judges. We're going to be in chapters 4 and 5 today. If you need a Bible, uh, go ahead and raise your hand and an usher will be able to drop one off. Also, just so you know, I have been posting sermon outlines on the Bible app. So if you have the real popular Bible app, uh, if you open that up and you look under the events section in that app, uh, you will see Park Community Church South Loop li listed right there, and you can follow along with the outlines each week. I hope that serves you guys well. Uh, let me pray for our time in the Word, and then we'll dig into Judges chapter 4 and 5. God, in this space right now, we call upon you to do something miraculous. God, we want to be transformed by Your Word. Every week when we come before Your Word, we desire to be transformed. We don't want to leave here the same person as we were when we came in. We want a life of growth and a life of transformation. Specifically and particularly, a life of gospel-filled transformation. God, You're able to accomplish that this morning by the power of Your Spirit. And so we pray that You would move powerfully through this room. I pray that those who came in here not expecting to be changed would leave here suddenly transformed, that there would be a movement of the Spirit that changes our hearts, our minds, and unites us around the gospel. Accomplish all of that in the powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. 1974, one of the great boxing matches in history took place. It is famously known as famously known as the Rumble in the Jungle. How many of you know a little about the Rumble in the Jungle? Anybody? Maybe we got a few hands here. Muhammad Ali faced off against the impossible to defeat George Foreman. George Foreman was the younger of the two, bigger, stronger, known for his famous haymaker punches that he'd throw that would just knock people on the ground. Muhammad Ali had taken a few years off and was coming back to regain his title. The match took place in Africa and the two of them went head to head as the world watched. Muhammad Ali immediately took a position against the ropes. He put his arms up against him like this and he leaned back against the ropes as the big imposing George Foreman began to wail on him in the first round. Round after round went by and Muhammad Ali barely threw a punch. George Foreman just wailed, wailed, just continued to beat on Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali all the while tucked back, receiving blow after blow after blow upon the ropes. The commentators that were watching, the sports announcers that were watching were just saying, how long can this man, Muhammad Ali, last? He's going to get beaten to a pulp. But little did everyone know that George Foreman was playing right into Muhammad Ali's hands. He was participating in what has been now called the rope-a-dope strategy. Muhammad Ali, leaning there against the ropes, knew that it took far more energy for George Foreman to throw a punch at him than it did for him to lean against the ropes and receive that blow. And in the opening of the eighth, Muhammad Ali stepped off the ropes and George Foreman was so exhausted he could barely lift his hands above his shoulders. Muhammad Ali started floating around the ring like a butterfly, stacked one punch after another on top of George Foreman, and with two seconds left in the eighth round of that rumble in the jungle, Muhammad Ali put George Foreman out. 
George Foreman was defeated. And the rope-a-dope and Muhammad Ali went down in history as one of the great moments in sports history. Throughout history, the church has oftentimes found themselves with, the back, with their back against the ropes. Throughout history, there have been seasons. There have been these moments where it looked like God's people were about to finally be expunged. Where a, an oppressor had risen up with such force, with such strength, and he had them in such a position that it seemed as if it would be impossible for God's people to come through. And yet time and time again throughout history, what we see is that God has a way of pulling rope This morning, we experience one of those stories. We find ourselves in the book of Judges, chapters 4 and 5. And what we've learned about the book of Judges so far is that this story traces God's people on their journey out of Egypt into the promised land of Israel. When they arrive in Israel, they were designed, God's people were designed to be a group of people, a nation, that were so near to God, so walking with God, so full of the Lord's love pouring into them, so obedient to His Word that literally they would be a nation set apart. That the whole world would look in on the country of Israel and what they would see is a people so walking with God that it would be attractive to them and the world would come to know about the God of the Bible through that nation of Israel. God has always been about His mission, which is gathering for Himself a people from every tongue, tribe, nation, and language around the globe. And in the Old Testament, the strategy that He implemented was a country, a people group named Israel. Judges traces the establishment of that country, but what we find in the book of Judges is that the people of Israel failed miserably at this task. While they were supposed to be obedient to God's word, they failed to live up to even the simplest of his commands and chose instead to assimilate into the cultural norms around them, bringing in all the false idolatry of the people groups that they were living among. And as a result, time and time again, this cycle occurs in Judges where the people of God rebel and they find themselves enslaved to an enemy bigger and stronger than them. But in the midst of this, in the midst of their brokenness, in the midst of God's people's inability to obediently live up to His commands, to take that mission God had given them, the book of Judges records a story of God faithfully pursuing His people. Despite their brokenness, despite their inabilities, despite their selfishness, despite their laziness, God pursues His people. In chapters 4 and 5 today, we encounter Deborah, a famous judge from this time, a leader in among the people of Israel. And chapters 4 and 5 tell the story of Deborah and her judgeship in two different ways. Chapter 4 is the typical version we've gotten, which is the historical narrative. It's kind of written in story form. Then in chapter 5, it tells the same story through poetry, through a song that Deborah and the other hero of this story, Barak, wrote. Today I'm going to be going back and forth between chapters 4 and 5, piecing together this story to try to understand what exactly happened. And as I work through these chapters, what I want to try to do is highlight how this judge, Deborah, and her story is totally different than every other judge and story in the book of Judges. I'm going to highlight four key differences for us from this. First one is this. Deborah faced a different kind of evil. Deborah was up against a different kind of evil. Judges chapter 4, verses 1 to 3 begin this way. 
And the people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. We've seen the beginning of this chapter many times already in the book of Judges. The people of God, again, did what was evil. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagoim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people cruelly for 20 years. Now, so far, this story sounds a lot like the other stories we've seen. The cycle continues. God's people sin, they fall into slavery under an evil oppressor, and then they cry out to God for help. Point for point, exactly what's happened. And yet, this one is a little different. First of all, we learn that this particular evil king that they're underneath had 900 iron chariots. 900 iron chariots. There was an evil king named King Jabin. Jabin was a worshiper of the false god Baal. What we've learned about Baal in this series so far is that Baal required living child sacrifice. As part of worship of the of Baal, that god demanded that you sacrifice children to him. And so he was an evil king, and he had this wicked general who was the commander of his army. And the general had 900 iron chariots. What this meant is he was one of the largest armies and most formidable armies in the entire world. The Israelites, the people of God, didn't have a chance. They were just people with swords. They, they couldn't go up against 900 iron chariots. But not only that, in chapter 5, we learn a few other pieces about this man Sisera, the general of this wicked army. There comes a moment later on after the victory of God's people over Sisera where Judges chapter 5 records this awkward moment where Sisera's mother is wondering what is taking her son so long to come back from the battle. Judges chapter 5 verses 28 to 30 read this way. Verses 28 to 30. Out of the window she peered, the mother of Sisera, wailed through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? Remember, this is poetry. This is song. Her wisest princess answered. Indeed, she answers herself. Here's her response of why Sisera is so long in coming back. Have they not found and divided the spoil? A womb or two for every man. Hmm. As it appears, Sisera had a very evil habit. When he conquered a people, he would then divide the women among his men and abuse them. This was a different kind of evil. This was a wickedness that the people of God had not faced yet. If you remember, as we traced back earlier uh, through God's commandments of war, if ever the people of God were to find themselves in a situation where they were at war with another nation, number one, they always had to offer terms of peace first. That was God's command to them. But if peace was not available and they went to war with another nation in the Old Testament, they were required to personally care for every widow and orphan that, that, that was a result of that war they went into. That's God's ethics in the Old Testament for war. And we marveled at that. How beautiful would that be if we treated war that way today? Here we've got an evil general, Sisera, who doesn't just throw God's law out the window. He literally is fueled by the devil and is treating the losses of war in an abominable way. He's abusing their women. This is a wicked king who had a wicked general over his army. This was a different kind of evil. 
But number two, Deborah is a different kind of judge. Deborah is a different kind of judge. When we first meet Deborah, the way we're introduced to her is very different than every other judge. Let me start in the poetic version of chapter 5. Deborah first introduces herself this way in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 5. She says, In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned and travelers kept to the byways. Essentially, in the days when this was all happening, no one was living. They were hiding. They were keeping off the highways. Community had stopped. Everyone was paralyzed. The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. Mama D comes to the rescue. Deborah describes herself as a mother to the broken people of Israel who are struggling to obey God, who are living in destitution. I think that language of how she sees herself is very important to understand the uniqueness of Deborah. We know about mothers. Mothers care. Mothers have this nurturing way about them where they, they come around and they take care of their children. And, and Deborah saw herself as a mama in Israel. This is funny for me because my mom's name happens to be Deborah and she's sitting right here. Mama D. Mama D over here. Now, as we meet her, we also learn a few other things about this woman named Deborah. Judges chapter 4, verses 4 to 5, read this way. Now, Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm tree of Deborah. She used to sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came to her for judgment. Now, first of all, what we learn is that she's a prophetess. She's a prophetess. What do prophets do? Prophets have one goal in their life, and that's to point everyone to God. Make less of me, make more of God. I want to I communicate God's word to you. What God speaks to me, I'm going to speak to you so that you don't see me, but you see God. Deborah had a vision for her life in which she wanted to point everyone she saw to God. Now, as we continue to trace in future weeks through Judges, what we'll find is not every judge lived up to that quality of Deborah. We are going to encounter a number of horrendously foolish judges. But secondly, we see her sitting under a palm tree. When we meet Deborah, Mama D, she's sitting under a palm tree and Israel is coming to her to design disputes and arguments for them. Let's contrast that with how we've met a handful of our other judges so far. Let's just go back to the end of chapter 3. Right at the end of chapter 3, before chapter 4, let's read about Shamgar. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath. This guy was a judge who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. Notice a little bit of a difference between Shamgar and Deborah. Shamgar is all brawn. All the judges so far that God has raised up have been these men of muscle who come in and they save the day through their muscle. And when we meet Deborah, the author very intentionally paints this woman as this woman of wisdom. Her judgeship is not one of brawn, but it's one of wisdom. She's totally different than the other people that we've experienced from. She's a woman and she's leading from her womanhood. She has a way about her that she is understanding how God has wired her, how God has created her, and she is leading with tenacity, with vitality, with courage, with faith. This is a strong woman of faith. Deborah led from a posture of wisdom. 
Now, that's important for us for just a moment. When we look to Deborah, she's a shining example for us in the Bible of not just a woman of faith, but of faith. Deborah led from a posture of wisdom. She had prioritized living a godly life. Wisdom doesn't just happen overnight. Deborah didn't just suddenly wake up and God zapped her with a lightning bolt and said, now you are a wise person and the people will come to you. This is a woman who had a life well lived. She was a follower of God. She was a disciplined student of His Word. She was engaged in His community. She lived a life day in and day out of submitting herself to God and allowing the fruit of that discipline to then extend into other people's lives. And after day in and day out and year in and year out of this quality of life, She assumes a role of leadership where Israel is coming to her to decide disputes. The the, the Bible says that that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If we want to live a wise life, if we want to be a Deborah, the kind of person that doesn't settle for for cheap wisdom, for for gossip and whatever the latest headline is, but, but someone who knows God's Word, Someone who is anchored in the Word of God, who who loves God, who is tried and true, who who, who can look at the situations of life and, and who you'd say, you know what, when my back's against the wall, I know who I need to go speak to because they carry themselves with a godly wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It first starts by developing a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. You you put your faith in Christ, and what happens at that moment is God begins forming something totally new in you. Godly wisdom is separate from earthly wisdom. It's not just when you gain years, you suddenly have a little more wisdom. I know plenty of people who are older in their years and do not have much wisdom at all to share. I would tell people, don't listen to that advice. And I know plenty of people who are very young in their years who have tremendous amounts of wisdom because they have been living disciplined lives in God's Word in relationship with God. Now, when you put the two of those things together, age and a disciplined life of walking with God and seeing God's faithfulness, then you get a powerhouse like Deborah. Are you living a life of discipline with God? Are you becoming a Deborah? Or are you settling for cheap tweets of wisdom, cheap snapshots of wise words and wise counsel? You can't fake this. You're either with God, learning God, loving God, worshiping God, in community, part of His church, or you're not. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Deborah's a totally different kind of judge. She leads from wisdom and not from brawn. Third, Barak, the next character we meet, is a different kind of hero. Barak's a different kind of hero. He accepts his dependence on other people. This is where the story begins to get fascinating. Pick up with me in chapter 4, verse 6 and 7. She, Deborah, sent and summoned Barak, the Saab of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go! Gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hands. Deborah summons the general 
Deborah summons the people of God's general over their army. Now, he didn't, hadn't really been leading an army all that much, but she knows that Barak is the man for the job, and so she summons him. And what you would expect from Barak at this moment is for him to take his orders and by faith go execute the command. If he's going to be like the other men that we've read so far in Judges, here comes the command and we're going to go out and we're going to do this by faith. But what we see from Barak is something different. Verses 8 and 9. Verses 8 and 9. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, Deborah, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. Barak looks at Deborah and in wisdom, as a man looks at this woman who has tremendous giftings of the Spirit, tremendous giftings of wisdom, and says, I'm not going to battle without you by my side. I'm not going by myself. I know God's with you. If I'm going out there, I want you with me. This is the kind of leadership that all men should, should have, by the way. Men, look at Barak right now. This is Humility. This is a humble nature. This is looking at the women of God, the powerful women of God around him and saying, I can't lead the way I need to lead without the beautiful, powerful, godly counsel of the women around me. We got a lot of Deborahs in this church. Men, we need their counsel as we lead in different ways. Barak has wisdom here. Some commentators think that this is a, a lapse in courage on Barak's part. They read Barak looking at Deborah and they say, you know what, this, this is him wimping out. He should have gone. And I disagree with that. And one of the reasons I disagree with that is that the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 11 celebrates Barak for his de demonstration of faith. This is a celebration of wisdom. And it's a picture of the dependence that God's people have on one another. And then look at how Deborah responds to Barak. Look at how she responds to Barak. She says, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, verse 9, nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah rose and went with Barak to Kadesh. I think this is a beautiful moment where Deborah is respecting Barak. In that day and age, when a general went out and defeated an army, who got the glory? That general. He'd come back, he'd throw a big festival, he'd, he'd bring in all the, the people that he conquered behind them as slaves, essentially. The people of God didn't quite do that, but this is, was the common thing at the time, is that that general would get all the glory. And Deborah says, out of respect to you, Barak, I want you to know that if I go with you, a woman is going to end up getting the glory. Are you okay with this? And you can just see Barak, this humble man, saying, you think I'm after glory? I want the Lord's will to be done. And to that, for that to happen, I need you by my side. Men, look to Barak for a moment. If I could just speak to the men. Men, we have a way about us that we are glory stealers. We like to get the, the victory shouts. We, we like to be in a posture and a position that gets the eyes on us so that we can receive the glory. And, and Barak is this example of saying, it's not about the glory that I'll receive. I need Deborah next to me to accomplish God's purposes. He's interested in seeing the fullness of God's plan come to fruition. And for that, he's dependent on the giftings of all of God's people. 
Now, in the New Testament church, this picture of interdependence of one another, of the different types of people with different giftings and different strengths, is exactly how the church is described. All through the New Testament, what we see is that there's no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. You can't be a Christian and try to do it on your own. We are dependent on one another. Even in a room like this, our worship is formed by the person we're sitting next to. Did you know that? When you're in a room like this and you're sitting worshiping, this is not just about you receiving teaching from the Word of God, but as you receive, the person next to you is now being formed by your receiving of the Word of God. We are an organism. We're God's body that's being formed by His Word, and we're dependent on one another. And specifically, we're dependent on the differences that one another have. One of the things we talk about often in this church is that we are a church that is absolutely 100% all-in committed to being a multi-ethnic church. Why is that? That's not just a cliche. That's not just a catchy thing. This is the New Testament church. As God established the New Testament church, he, he looked out and he tells us in the New Testament that the dividing wall of hostility between the Gentiles and the Jews, between races, has been torn down, and now it's not just one country that's the people of God, but it's a kingdom that expands over all people groups. It's a kingdom of followers of Jesus that expand over every culture in different times and every country, and every different culture of the people of God have a different worldview, a different experience, a different look on the Scriptures than any other world. Worldview. And so for any of us to have an accurate and full picture of God, we're dependent on other people from different backgrounds in order to sharpen and to shape us. This is why we make such a big deal about this in this church. There's a great picture of this that I was reminded of recently. A, a man by the name of Mark Allen Powell read, uh, did, formed an experiment. And the experiment was that he read the story of the prodigal son. You might know the story of the prodigal son. It's a New Testament parable that God tells about a wayward son that runs away from his father, but then when he's destitute, he has nowhere else to go. He returns back to his dad, and his dad receives him warmly. And it's a picture of God's love for us when we're in rebellion to him. Well, in this experiment, he took 12 American seminary students, and he asked them to recount the major events of the story of the prodigal son. Not one of the 12 American seminary students mentioned the famine that is mentioned in Luke chapter 15, verse 14, when recounting that story. Later, he did the same experiment with 100 Americans, and only six mentioned the famine. Later, he did the same experiment with 50 participants in Russia, and 42 of those 50 did mention the famine. Seventy years before, 670,000 of the Russian people had died of starvation after a three-year war that had, related, that had resulted in famine. The author goes on to explain the completely different eyes through which these people read the same story. For the Russians, the application of the story has less to do with the real, willful rebellion and more to do with God's faithfulness in the midst of something as horrific as a famine. I wonder how much we're missing from the fullness of the gospel if we never deeply relate to people of different cultures from the one that we're comfortable with. 
I wonder how many treasures of God's word go unexposed if we never see Scripture through other people's lenses than our own. I wonder, I wonder how many times I have cast judgment on people who God has intended to teach me about himself through them. I wonder how many blessings the Chinese church and the African-American church and the Latino church live in daily that the often homogenous white church in America has no idea about because they've never stepped into that space to learn from different worldviews of their own. Barack is a different kind of hero. He recognizes his dependence on the other giftings and people around him. If we're going to be a people of God, if we're going to be a people of God that treasure God, that desire to see God move, that desire to see Jesus' church established as He designed it with His power, in His ways, in obedience to His Word, we've got to pick up on a little bit of what Barak is teaching us here. There's no glory to bring on our own shoulders. What the church does is we come around each other, we put our arms on his shoulders, we say we are united by Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Once that's happened, we're now in a brotherhood, a family in which God uses each individual person to bless the others in that family. I want to challenge you to step into a life of Barak humility. Number four, their deliverance is a different kind of deliverance. So far what we've seen in this book of Deborah, in this story of Deborah, is that the evil was a different kind of evil. This man, Cicero, was a wicked man. We see that Deborah was a different kind of judge who led from wisdom and not from brawn. We see that Barak was a different kind of hero who, who went about his heroism in total dependence rather than independence. And at the end, we're going to find that the deliverance that they experience is a different kind of deliverance. Where are we at in the story? Barak and Deborah have marched out to Mount Tabor. Now, can you put the image up of Mount Tabor? Here's an actual picture of Mount Tabor in Israel. What you'll see is it's a huge, wide mountain. If Barak and Deborah had 10,000 warriors with them, they could all fit on top of that mountain. And all around Mount Tabor are these flatlands. It's this huge open flatland, plenty of space for Sisera to gather his 900 chariots and all of his army around that little mountain to squelch out the pipsqueak God's people's army. They were nothing sitting on top of that mountain. You can just imagine Sisera filling this plain with his army. Why don't you go ahead and leave that picture up as we go about this. Judges chapter 4 verse 15 reads this way. The story, the historical narrative, reads very quickly what happened. As they were gathered there, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword, and Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. Now, if all we had was chapter 4, we would just assume that somehow Barak and his 10,000 people charged down that mountain like thunder. By the way, his name literally means lightning bolt. Charged down that mountain like thunder and somehow overran 900 iron chariots. 
What happens next in the story, in the remainder of chapter 4, tells us that Deborah's prophecy comes true. Sisera runs away on foot and just so happens to run into the tent of a woman named Jael who takes the moment to kill Sisera, thereby fulfilling Deborah's prophecy that said the honor and the glory will go to a woman. It ended up going to Jael as she is remembered as the one who finally killed Sisera. But what happened in the battle? How did Barak do it? Well, we got to go to chapter 5. I think one of the reasons we have chapter 4 and chapter 5 is to remind us of something. What happened in chapter 5 is Deborah and Barak sat down and reflected on the encounters they had. They sat down and took a moment to look backwards on the events that unfolded, and then they began to see God's fingerprint all over what had happened that day. Chapter 4 tells the narrative, and sometimes when we're just going through the narrative of our life, we don't necessarily see the fingerprints of God over everything we're doing. In chapter 4, the name of God comes up four times. But then in hindsight, when you sit and reflect and you remember what God's done, in chapter 5, God is saturated throughout this chapter. Chapter 5, verse 4, the earth trembled, describing the battle. The earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Hear that? Yes, the clouds dropped water. Chapter 5, verse 20, from the heaven the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent, Kishon, swept them away. That ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon, march on my soul with might. As it turns out, here's what happened. It was dry season. There's no way Sisera would have led his men out to army, put them in the middle of that field in the middle of rainy season. It does not rain in Israel in the dry season. And as he was out there waiting to go to battle, the Lord made it rain. The Lord made it rain. As it turns out, Barak was marching to go to battle on that mountain, but it turns out the Lord was marching before him, and the rain came down and began to flood. Now, what happens to iron chariots that are sitting on dry mud outside of a mountain? They get completely clogged up. They not only become useless, they, be, they become a hassle in the, midst of, in the midst of battle. Here we have an impossible situation. Barak with his back against the ropes. There is no possible way that he is going to overcome Sisera and his 900 iron chariots. And all of a sudden, when it looks like there is absolutely no hope, when seven rounds of battle have gone by and the two armies are going head to head, God opens the reins and causes rain to come down on the battlefield. All that was required of Barak and Deborah was to trust was to have faith and to put themselves on the mountain. All they had to do was go out there and stand on the mountain in that situation when everyone would have said, he's too big, he's too strong, you can't win. But God's promises always come true. How many of you know that God's promises always come true? God made it rain. God has total control over the rain. You know, I remember another man in Scripture who had control over the rain. Anyone, anyone come to mind of someone else in Scripture that has control of the rain? There's a story in the New Testament where Peter and his disciples, they're sitting on a boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, and the storms begin to come over them, and it's raining tremendously, and all the disciples think that they're about to die. 
They're certain of it. They're about to die. Meanwhile, Jesus is sleeping in the bottom of the boat. The disciples are frantic, trying to figure out what are they going to do, how are they going to survive. Not only are they going to die, but their leader is going to die as well. Jesus casually steps up, walks to the front of the boat, looks out over the storm, puts his hand out, says, Peace, be still. He speaks to the storm, and the storm obeys his command. Jesus has control over the weather. Jesus has control over every single moment of human history. When the rains opened up over that land to cause a rainstorm to come so that Barak could have a victory over Sisera when it looked like it was impossible for it to happen, it was because the God that's over the rain, Jesus, made it rain when there was no other way. Jesus made it rain. When we look at what Jesus did, Jesus steps finally into the flesh in the life of the man we know as Jesus from Nazareth, and he proved that he was the same God that was over the weather back in Judges chapter 4 and 5. When we look at the gospel accounts of Jesus, everything we would expect of the God that was able to make it rain for Barak is what we see in the life of Jesus. He performed tremendous miracles. He caused the rain to stop He healed the blind men. He he made people who could not walk be able to walk. Everywhere he went, he taught with such teaching that people today still look back and say, how did he teach that way? The ethics he taught were beyond anything humanity has ever known. And yet he was led as a criminal to the cross. The same devil that got into Sisera that had Barak and his men with their back against the wall put Jesus with his back against the wall. He pinned Jesus up on a cross. He took rebellious men and women and they accused him of crimes he didn't commit. They said he was guilty of blasphemy, though he wasn't, and they pinned him up on a cross. And in that moment, the devil looked like he was about to win. He had Jesus exactly where he wanted him. He was pounding away on Jesus, but he didn't know that Jesus was pulling a -a rope-a-dope on him. He didn't know it. Jesus, pinned there on the cross, is playing, is allowing the devil to play exactly into his hands. As he's there hanging on the cross, here's what's happening. The sin of the world is being piled on his shoulders. The devil thinks he's pinning Jesus and he's taking away the hope of the world. Meanwhile, Jesus knows what's happening in that exact moment is your sin and my sin is being laid on his shoulders. He's paying in full the debt we owe to God as a result of our rebellion to him because we live like these judges who constantly take our eyes off God. When Jesus died, God died. God in the flesh bled. Let that sink in for just a moment. When Jesus was crucified, the God who sustained the people of God throughout the Old Testament, who took on flesh, was crucified like a common criminal, and he died. And the devil thought he had won. And then on the third day, Jesus came off the ropes. On the third day, he rose from the grave. He defeated the devil once and for all. And here's what this means. The devil has been defeated. Just as George Foreman was knocked out, down and out, the devil's been defeated. He has no more power over any person who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible says once he had a hold on your life, once we were enslaved to him as God's people were enslaved to Jabin. But if we place our faith in Jesus 
The victory is in full. He can't hold you. He can taunt you. He can attack you, but he can't own you because Jesus has won the full victory on the cross. At the resurrection, the devil was knocked out. How do we apply this last section? I think what we need to see is this moment when Barak and Deborah stand on Mount Tabor. I want you to think of the faith that it takes for them to hear the promises of God and then to actually go stand in front of 900 iron chariots. That takes faith. That takes a belief and a clinging on to God's word to put yourself in a position where you know God's told you to do this, but you also know that he's promised he'll be with you in the midst of it. That's the faith that God calls us to. It's not a faith that says I can do this on my own. It's not a faith that says that I can make myself right with God. It's not a faith that says that I can become a great person. It's a faith that says that God's word is true and I will put myself in the situations God called me to put myself into. I trust. I trust that no matter how much my back is against the wall, God's promises never fail. He always comes through. That doesn't mean he'll always make it nice for you. That doesn't mean he'll solve every problem of yours. It doesn't mean every battle you experience in this life that you're going to experience a happy, clean ending to it in this life. Absolutely not. That's not the victory Jesus says he gives, but he does promise final victory. He says it will come. There is another life waiting for us where all will be made right, and he stays with you in the midst of it. This is a different kind of deliverance. This is a deliverance of a God who doesn't just say, I know you, but who says, I love you, who walks in the midst of it and delivers us by his hand. Will you pray with me? Father, we trust you this morning. We're amazed at the people of God and the faith they had. We're amazed, God, because oftentimes it feels like we can't muster a shred of that faith. God, I pray for our people that your spirit would move mightily among us. We want to put ourselves in positions where we're dependent on you. And God, frankly, if we're bold enough to pray it right now, would you strip us away of our comforts? Would you actually take away those things that we depend on more than you? We want to cling to you as if your promises really matter, as if you really are the God who loves us. Would you form that in us this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.